to the first book of the Bible. Now, that might not make any sense to some people, but it will. Genesis chapter number 10. As I said this morning, this lesson tonight is actually supplementary, uh, a supplementary lesson in our study of the book of Revelation. And because Revelation chapter 17 and chapter 18 deals with Babylon, and these are two of the most difficult and disputed chapters in all of the Bible, it's necessary that we consider something about the history of Babylon. Because if we don't know anything about the details of its founding and its purpose and its history and so forth, why uh, we're going to have a really hard time of comprehending what's being said in those two chapters. So I want you to consider about six, maybe seven different things tonight concerning Babylon. First of all, the beginning of Babylon, and we find that here in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis in verse number 10. And in this verse, we see the first mention of the word, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That word means confusion, and it's first mentioned here, and then it is referred to approximately 280 times throughout the Bible. That's more than any city except Jerusalem. Now, you know that when God speaks about a particular place uh, that many times, that there's a good reason for it. And that's what I want you to see tonight. So this is where it has its beginning. But we need to understand not only uh, the time, the chronological time in which it was established, but also something about the founder of Babylon. And if you'll begin in verse number 8, it says, "...in Cush begat Nimrod..." He began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning, notice the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now you'll remember that God had destroyed the earth with the flood. And when that happened, we find that the races were divided up into Three divisions, each one beginning with one of the sons of Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. And so we're all very much aware of that fact. But the actual division, now remember we've got, and I, I, I'll probably again and again refer to races, but understand that's, that's really not a Bible word as we think of a Bible word, but Humanity is divided up into these three distinct classes, each one, each one uh, beginning with one of the sons of Noah. But we're talking about the actual division of the earth and of the peoples. And we see that, I think, in the days of Peleg. If you look in verse number 25, and it says, And unto Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg for his day. Days was in his days was the earth divided. Now look at verse number thirty-two, 
And it tells us here, and these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Now, keep in mind that this is what God did, right? As a result of man's sinfulness, God said, I'm going to destroy the earth. And it was God's choice to divide up the peoples of the earth into these three distinct groups. We have today, and you're going to see why we have this philosophy of bringing everybody together into one great big one world government, one world church and what have you. Let's forget all of our differences and work together and be diplomatic and so forth and politically correct. But understand that God divided the peoples, and He did so for a reason. Now, we find that Nimrod founds a city by the name of Babel, and if we read in chapter 11, we learn about the construction of this place, and it's very important. And keep in mind that God has destroyed the earth, all except Noah and his family, and he has divided up the peoples into those three people groups. But now chapter 11, and we're going to read the first nine verses. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Sinai, and they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men Builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all of the earth, and they left off to build the city, and therefore the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the languages of all of the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now notice the founder of this place. His name is Nimrod. That, that word means a rebel or to separate. And so we see him creating, as it were, a state of rebellion against God himself. Because God said, I want three distinct groups. And they said, you can forget that. We're all going to get together into one group. We're all going to be alike. And notice in verse number 9 of chapter 10, where we read a while ago that it describes him as a mighty hunter. In Unger's Bible Dictionary... Quote, it says, 
of Nimrod that he was the exact opposite of the divine ideal of a king, that of a shepherd. Whereas a hunter gratifies himself at the expense of his victim, the shepherd expends himself for the good of the subjects of his care. So that gives us a hint as to what this fellow was like, right? We know something about his nature uh, by virtue of the fact that he is called a hunter instead of a shepherd. And so he is a rebel, and, and it, it tells us here that, that he created a, an atmosphere of oneness among the people. When you look in chapter 10, and I'm jumping around here, but we've got to put these pieces together where we just read in verses 10, 11, and 12, it tells us he's responsible for building eight cities, and uh, that, that made him the mastermind of Chaldea, and he's called the founder and the father of civilization. Professor George Rollison, who wrote Rollison's Ancient Monarchies, uh, that is a, a, a standard in Bible colleges, uh, I think across America in a, a, a great work, and he said that Chaldee stands forth as the great parent and original inventress of Asiatic civilizations without any rival that can reasonable, reasonably dispute her claims. And, and so in his opinion, in his studied opinion, and nearly all historians would agree with him, that's right, that this this is where uh, what we call, you know, civilization started in the sense of nations and peoples coming together. Uh, I had the privilege many years ago of knowing a man by the name of Noel Smith pretty well and spending some time with him, and he was a professor at Baptist Bible College and one of the most brilliant men that I've uh, that I've ever known. Uh, in fact, he was the editor of the Baptist Bible Tribune for uh, for many, many years and was well thought of across the nation. Just a brilliant man. But he wrote a, he wrote a small book many years ago, I still have in my library somewhere, called Nimrod the Rebellious Panther. Nimrod the Rebellious Panther. And there was a quote in that book that applies to what we're thinking about just now. And he said, The moral and religious ideas of the world originated in the land which Nimrod conquered and governed. And he puts in parentheses, of course, I'm not speaking about Christianity, which is not of the world. And then he proceeds, arithmetic and astrology came from the Chaldeans to the Egyptians and thence to the Greeks. And it was from Nimrod's land that Greece got her uh, architecture, her sculpture, her science, her philosophy, and her mathematical knowledge, and Rome got what uh, she had from the Greeks. So, you see, we can trace all of this back to these people and to this time and to this man. And so, you know, quite obviously, he plays a very important part in the history of the world. But, but the first thing that jumps out at me is, what is this all about? What was his cause? What was his plan? What is he trying to do? For him, you know, to rebel against God, I mean, why? Uh, after all, you know, God usually has pretty good plans, right? God generally knows what He's doing, right? 
And this fellow said, you know, you can forget that. I've got a better plan. I've got a better idea. And we're going to do it this way. God might want us to be divided, but we're not going to do it. Well, look at verse 4 in chapter number 11, because here is the description of what his plan was. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tire whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, that's interesting, let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. If we had to reduce this down to the simplest terms, I think we could say that his plan was for internationalism. Internationalism, bringing the people groups together, bringing the nations together, as it were, that's what we would call a one-world government. And, and, of course, he's the head honcho of it, right? Uh, he, he's, he's the one trying to make a name for himself. He's the one that wants to run the whole show. And he wants it all under his authority. And uh, so he brings the nations together. And notice they purposed that they were going to build a city and a tower that would hopefully spare them from any future judgment. Now, evidently the tower had a twofold purpose and one of them is quite obvious, but the other is something that generally gets overlooked. And that is that it was what is commonly known as a ziggurat. That is a, that is a tower that has a, what we would call a, a shrine or a chapel of some kind in the top of this tower where the zodiac, the zodiac was inlaid there in, in the, in the roof of it and Naturally, by, you know, looking at that and looking at the stars, supposedly, you know, they could tell the future. You know, kind of like these people that can't, can't drink their first cup of coffee until they read their horoscope in the morning, you know. Yeah. I don't want to get off on that, but I'll tell you, and I've said it before, I'd be scared to death to even read my horoscope. I, I, I don't plan on ever doing that. I don't think any Christian ought to ever mess with that stuff. It will get you in trouble. It is satanic to the core. And so this was the purpose. And, and it says over in, in, in Isaiah chapter 47 that gives us some information about this. Verse number 12. And here, and this is speaking about Babylon, by the way. And he says, Stand now with thine enchantments and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. In other words, this is taking them back to the moment that we're talking about right now. That this is what they've been doing from the very beginning when they established the city and built the tower. And he says, If so be that thou shalt be able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail, thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly pronosticators stand up, notice, and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. So here we have several hundred years later the prophet Isaiah speaking about the very thing that we're reading about and condemning them for what they did. So in their mind, without God's help, without His intervention, they'll be able through astrology to figure it all out. And so that's what they look to for guidance. But there is a second reason here 
that is also very obvious. And you remember that the Lord even stated, you know, if I don't do something, they are going to carry through the plan that they had. What what was they trying to do? Build a tower that would reach into the heaven. Now, obviously, they wasn't building the tower to the third heaven. That wasn't the point at all. But building a tower up into the heaven that would provide them safety. Remember, they've just had the flood. The world has been destroyed. And their idea is, we're not going to let God do that again. Now, that shows how stupid they were because God said He wasn't going to do it. That just goes to show the way people reason. They ignore what God says and jump to conclusions and get themselves in all kinds of trouble. But that, that, this is what they're thinking. We're not going to let God do that again. We're going to build this tower that will be high enough that we can preserve our seed there in the top of the tower. And if we build it up above the high water mark, and so that is the plan. And, and God says they would have achieved that purpose had he not intervened. Now, to see the seriousness of this, because you might be thinking that this is purely a political scheme. You might be thinking that it has nothing to do actually with spiritual matters, but you'd be wrong. And that brings us to the third thing that we need to consider that will especially come into play when we get back to our study of Revelation, and that is the worship of Babylon. And here's, here's some information that you can dig out of numerous history books. I'm no historian by any means, but I can read a little bit, and I can pronounce a few of the words at least, and I can get the information and find out, just like you can, something about what their philosophy was. Nimrod, when he died, Queen... Semirius, I believe is the way you pronounce her name, she claimed that he was the sun god. So thereafter, uh, and, and by the way, by the way, she also claimed to give birth, uh, miraculously, you know, and, and she gave birth to an illegitimate son by the name of Tammuz, and she said that Tammuz, this illegitimate son that she said was come as a result of a miraculous birth, that Tammuz was Nimrod reborn. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, you know, people say truth is stranger than fiction, and it is. And she said this is Nimrod reborn through a supernatural conception. So after that, Nimrod was identified as Baal, and remember, Baal is the sun god, and pictured that way. And so Tammuz called uh, the 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 uh, the sun. Tammuz was called the sun, s o n, of the sun, s u n, god. Now, if any of that sounds familiar to you. It needs to be pointed out that all of the religions since that time and down through history, all of them have had an imitation, miraculous uh, conception as Mary. In other words, for every real thing, there is a counterfeit. And uh, that's why there's so much confusion in the world. A lot of people, you know, talk about being so many... Why are there so many churches? Why is there so much confusion uh, well, that's because there's good and there's bad. There's God and there's Satan. 
and and you know it's quite obviously obvious why there is. But uh, Ralph Woodard in, in Woodrow in a book that he wrote many years ago said all nations in ancient times worshipped a divine mother and God child in one form or another centuries before the true Savior, our Lord Jesus, was born into the world. Ashtoreth and Ashtoreth was the name by which the goddess was known to the children of Israel. And we find that cropping up again and again and again, those very names and identifying those particular gods through the Bible. And they have their own story concerning, uh, you know, the, 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 the virgin birth. Now, Surely all of this is evident to any student of the Bible that, 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 that this relates to what we would refer to today as Mary worship, uh, practiced by the Catholics. And it's a, Catholicism is just a continuation of what started way back then. And so what started back then as a system of belief uh, now has developed into, you know, the the, the modern day uh, 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 movement of Catholicism and and so forth, and they've adopted. And by the way, on Ralph Woodrow's book, if you ever find that anywhere, boy, he documents so many different things related to Catholicism that identify with the ancient Babylonians. That, that is just amazing. A lot of times you wonder, where in the world did they get a weird idea like that? Why do they do what they do? You don't trace it back to the Bible. You trace it back to Babylon, you see. The philosophy of Babylon, then, is a deliberate... Remember, we're talking about Nimrod, who was a rebel. And so the philosophy of Babylon has to do with a deliberate, premeditated rebellion against God. And so if we apply this to, you know, to the, the spiritual things, it, it's simply this. It is a man-made way of salvation by works. And by the way, works don't work. They never have and they never will. You can't work your way to heaven. But it's man's effort to do something on his own apart from God in order... To save himself. By the way, it, it, it's, it's a bit strange that in our message this morning, we're talking about this exact same thing, right? Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do? Nebuchadnezzar made an image, said everybody's going to have to bow down. Whenever the band starts playing, you hear the music, you know. Everybody's got to bow down uh, to that image. If not, I'm going to cast you into the fiery furnace. And so we see an example of that very thing, and this is the philosophy of all of it, and this is where it all started. And even of greater interest is the fact that in Revelation chapter 13, what did we see there? We saw the same thing, right? Remember, it tells us there that the false prophet makes an image of the beast that is the Antichrist. He makes an image of the beast, and all of those that refuse to bow down and to worship it, uh, they'll be killed. And so we see it going all of the way back from the very beginning to the very end, and we trace this philosophy and uh, the, the spirit of worship of the Babylonians through all of time. Now... 
The next thing that we need to take note of is the destruction of historic Babylon. And we don't have time to read all of the verses tonight related to this, but you'll find it in Isaiah chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 14, references to that. Also, Jeremiah chapter 50 and chapter 51. So if you want to do more uh, more in-depth study when you get home, you can read about it there. We see from what we've just read what happened where God came down and God confounded the languages and God uh, put a stop to it, you know, at the, and, and confounded the languages at that time. And then we read about it in Daniel chapter number 5 where Darius uh, the Mede took the kingdom. Unger's Bible Dictionary says that after its fall, after the fall of Babylon, quote, from that time on, the decay of the city began. Xerxes plundered it. Alexander the Great thought to restore its great temple in ruins, uh, in ruins in his day, but was deterred by the prohibitive cost. During the period of Alexander's successors, the area decayed rapidly and soon became a desert and the end of the world's greatest city of antiquity had come. So we see that it's been destroyed, by the way, and I've got a whole file on this at home, and I'm not going to get off into that. You know, Saddam Hussein, you know, uh, had the idea, I'm going to rebuild it. I'm going to, and, and, and by the way, did some things. Remember that, that this is the very, what's called the cradle of civilization there is what we've been talking about. And he was going to rebuild it all and had plans to, to do it. Well, it didn't work out very good, did it? And it never has. Because when God sets His face against something, you better believe God's going to finish what He starts. I, I was, um, you know, a lot of times we can start some things we can't finish. And, and I happen to be, uh, somebody sent me a thing about, uh, you, can, you can tell you're from Springfield, Missouri, if... And they, they, they've got, I didn't know, they got a whole Facebook page on that. And I got to, I got to looking at that and uh, going down through there. And I thought, boy, you talk, you talk about something addictive. <laughs> when you're as old as I am and you're looking at your hometown and stuff from 70 years ago that you remember. But it was interesting that somebody, uh, somebody posted on there, uh, who do you think was the... the and I won't use the exact language they used, who was the toughest dude in town back then. And everybody everybody had it right, you know, almost right, reduced down to about, about five names. And it so happened that I knew every one of those guys when <laughs> I went, I, I, I went, went, to, went to school with them, all but one, <laughs> And, and and they were right, except for this one guy. Everybody kept talking about how tough he was. And uh, I started to post on there. I had a buddy named Joe Tyndall. He was a little bitty short guy and just, you know, one of these boxy guys. Well, the first day, the first day over at high school, this other kid challenged him to a fight. He had heard about Joe, I guess, whatever. And Joe was real, so he picked him. Joe knocked him out with one punch. This kid, the next day, this kid uh, 
cornered him out in front of the gymnasium the next day and said, we're going to do this all over again. You got in a lucky blow. And little Joe knocked him out again with one punch. I mean, just put him down. Well, I didn't post that. I didn't want to get anything started online that was going to lead to a big feud. But my whole point is, and forgive me for reminiscing uh, a little bit, my whole point is some people start stuff they can't finish, you know. And that's the way it is with man-made religion and all of our ideas that we get that we have a better way. And that's what's going on in the world today. We see it everywhere. We're trying to reinvent the family, as it were. God established the family, and God defined the family many long years ago, and we better accept it for what it is. That's what God said. We don't have a better idea. Hillary comes along and says, well, it takes a village, baloney. It doesn't take a village, it takes a family and a church is what it takes. And so here we see, down through history, the continuation of this, of this philosophy that has its roots back here in Babylon. And, and you'll see that that philosophy has permeated every religion in every generation down through history, because the same devil that influenced Nimrod and those people in that day is also at work in organized religion today. Different times, different places, different people. But folks, it's the same old story. Now, the the most evident uh, comparison of this, I guess you would say, is seen in Roman Catholicism. Now, I want to be very clear that I am, that I'm not leaving the impression that the one world church and the great whore that's mentioned in Revelation, I am not saying that it is the Roman Catholic Church per se, but I am saying, and it's very clear, that the Roman Catholic Church is involved in that greatly. I bring that up because for hundreds of years now, it has been standard among all of the Protestants and all of the Baptists and everybody to just say that the Roman Catholic Church is the great whore, the, uh, you know, the false church and so forth. And uh, although they're a part of it, we've got to understand that it's more than that. But I, I mention that just because there are some things that are so evident in Catholicism, that is associated with uh, with the the spirit of Babylon. There's Mary worship, and we just went through that. I'll not go through it again. There's Mary worship, and that goes goes back to Samarius and the and the attitude that people had toward her. There's the Rosary, by the way, that was started and used about 800 B.C. in the worship of the mother goddess by the Phoenicians. There are the statues, and these have always been used in pagan religions. There's the obelisk. Now, as strange as the... Remember, we're talking about a tower, right? And, and there's some stuff about this I don't want to go into here in a mixed audience or anything like that. But whenever we talk about the obelisk, it is a tower that was associated with the worship of the sun god. And, and of course, symbols have always been big among uh, among the Catholics. 
here's the interesting thing. There, there is an obelisk at the front entrance of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And it was actually moved from Egypt in 1586 and used in pagan worship. Why would they do that? Is it just a matter of paying homage to antiquity? Is, is that it? Just trying to preserve some, you know, historical structure? No, there's more to it than that. And I say that because if you think they don't take the presence of that obelisk serious, the Pope in that day had attached the death penalty to anyone, any of the workers that, that was working on the project, if it was dropped and broken in any way, I mean, it was curtains for you, buddy. I mean, they were going to execute them. So they take it serious. And what is it? It is a relic straight out of, of Babylonian worship. It is exactly what it is. Now, when we come to Revelation 17 and 18, and Lord willing, next week we'll get started there we see the final doom of Babylon. And we're going to see, and you will remember, no doubt, back in chapter number 14, verse 8, where it says, Babylon is fallen, that great city, because she hath made nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And, and we read that it says that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, in, in other words, mentioned twice. And we see in chapter number 17, one description, another in chapter number 18. In chapter 17, it speaks about ecclesiastical Babylon. That is the, the religious side of Babylon. And then when we come to chapter 18, it speaks about uh, economics. That has to do with the political side, or, or the commercial side, you might say, of ancient Babylon. And these, during the tribulation, are tied together. And here, here's the thing that gets us confused sometimes because we look around us and we think, oh my, that is far, far away. I, I, we just don't understand how anything like that could happen so fast. We don't see, you know, that existing today. I can remember back when the World Council of Churches started, and there's some people, you know, automatically start saying, well, there you go. There you go. That's that one world church the Bible speaks about, the World Council of Churches. Well, uh, in, in reality, they've, uh, they've pretty well lost uh, a, a lot of their steam today. But understand, whenever the rapture takes place and God's people are removed and the tribulation period begins, you and I cannot believe the rapidity with which things are going to suddenly change. We talked about it already that the Antichrist is going to make an agreement with Israel. In other words, he's going to have a peace plan, supposedly, you know. He's going to enter into an agreement with them. They'll announce it on TV all around the world. Uh, the president, you know, has just signed this peace treaty with Israel, and he's bringing peace to the Middle East, and everything's going to be fine now. And, and we're going to see all of a sudden the... The need, and remember we talked about this, I think it was last week, uh, where the Euphrates being dried up and the kings of the east coming down and Russia coming down out of the north. And automatically, and for years and years now, we know 
that the European common market has been working together, in fact, with one world currency and so on and so forth, and getting these ten nations together in a pact. And about the time they think they got it a done deal, one nation will drop out and then another nation will get in. But mark it down, mark it down. Whenever, whenever, whenever the storm breaks in the tribulation, all of a sudden, just overnight, you're going to see an alliance between those nations and you're going to see the influence of this religious system that teaches a salvation by works instead of a salvation by grace through faith. And you're going to see them coming together, joining together for the common good. There, there, listen, there's so much in my mind, I, I can't even hardly collect my thoughts because there's so many things that's just bombarding my mind when I think about our situation here in America. The other day I'm trying to think who, oh, it was the Supreme Court Justice uh, Scalia, was it? I believe, and I posted that. I said this ought to this ought to frighten us. He says that these these uh, prison camps are coming to America. I mean, it's it's not a matter it's not a matter of if it's just when they're coming. Look, we're talking about here in America anyone rising up in protest against the government and them shipping you off out here to a prison camp somewhere like the one there in Colorado and they've got different ones. There's talk all over the web about this if you don't believe it. And my land of living, all of the... All of the ammunition here that the government has been buying up when nobody else could get it, they're buying it up by the wagon load, so to speak. Hollow points, which they can't even use in combat against other nations. They can't even use that. Why do they want that? You don't use hollow point ammunition for target practice. You use it to put down people that you want to get rid of. And look, I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just telling you, you ought to be frightened. You ought to be frightened when you think about what is coming to America. And, and it, look, and it's not, not going to be just reserved for those of us here in America. There's going to be a worldwide conflict. But in the end, in the end, Babylon and this great alliance that man establishes, trying to show our superiority over God, in the end, it's going to be destroyed. In other words, this fallen world is finally going to fall. Everything that is man-made is going to end up being destroyed. And then God's going to do what? He said, Behold, I create all things new. He's going to get rid of all of what man's been trying to do. And that's the one encouraging thing about all of this. Yes, we are frightened over the condition of our nation when we see what is happening. But let me tell you, don't look, don't just stop there and bury your head in the sand. Keep in mind what God has planned down the road. And that's why we keep saying for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. Because in the end, God is going to win. He's going to destroy what man has been doing. You know, and there's an old song that, uh, that Southern Gospel type song and probably even in the, 
even the, the old heavenly highway book that we use, it says, build your hopes on things eternal, hold to God's unchanging hand. Boy, that's good advice, isn't it? Build your hopes on things eternal. The hope of Babylon has failed. It From the very beginning, it was a failure. But it's going to end in disaster. And, and we're living in a time where we can see so much of this unfolding before our very eyes. And I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe you're thinking, oh, well, I wish I'd been born a hundred or two hundred years ago. I'm kind of excited about living in this day and age. Amen. I'm kind of, I'm kind of excited about the fact that as heartbreaking as it is to see what's going to happen to our beloved nation, I'm excited to think about the fact that God's not through. And what He starts, what He starts, He's going to finish. Amen. All right, let's all stand together, and I hope you'll join with us next week whenever we look at the destruction of ecclesiastical or religious Babylon when he brings it all tumbling down in that final day. Let's sing a, let's sing a verse. Come on. I, you know, I, you, you